Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of the Handgun World Podcast. A practical show done by a practical guy, and that is me because I am not ex-military or ex-law enforcement. I'm not a fancy gunsmith. All I am is just a regular guy. I do some firearms training on the side. It's kind of like my side hustle, but you're not going to get any industry insider information from me when you listen to this show. You're listening to a Yankee with a gun born in New York City, raised in Wisconsin. Now I live in the great gun-friendly state of Texas, and I just keep it real. I keep it rooted in common sense, and I talk about what everyday people think about and what they want to know about with firearms, specifically handguns. So let's get right straight into this episode about my favorite gun. So I'm going to wait until a little bit later in this uh, episode to talk or actually to reveal what that is. I want to remind you this show is sponsored by Concealment Solutions, makers of fantastic holsters. You can find them at Concealment Solutions. Dot com For all of you who are Shooters Club members, you still get a 15% discount through the month of September. So that's going to end pretty soon. You have to email me to get the coupon code for your 15% off through the month of September. ConcealmentSolutions.com. Check them out. Uh, fantastic holsters that I use about 90% of the time. So, let's get into the main topic, my favorite gun. First, let me roll the tapes back a little bit, and uh, let's go back to the summer of 2005, June of 2005. That's when I pretty much started my, my shooting hobby, I guess you could say it. I didn't start this podcast until four years later in August of 2009, but I got interested mainly in competition shooting. Uh, but my first handgun, I actually I worked out a trade with a customer of mine at that time. I traded some of my services and products for one of his guns. Uh, he was an FFL dealer as well, so... It, it kind of worked out nicely. The first gun I ever got was a SIG P226. First handgun. A SIG P226. And it was a nice one. Uh, had a real cool trigger job done where a, a good gunsmith was able to really smooth and lighten the double action trigger on that gun. I had a chrome slide. And uh, just it was just a really, really nice gun. And I thought, wow, this is great. I had never had a handgun, anything like that before, a SIG 226. All I had was rifles and shotguns. And the FFL that happened to be my customer at the time was a big SIG fan, so we worked out that deal. Fantastic gun. I ended up keeping that gun about a year and a half. Uh, nothing wrong with it. Fantastic gun. Just a little bit too big and heavy for me. I wanted something that I could also carry. It wasn't going to be just a range toy. And I was not, at that point, I was not yet involved in competition shooting. This was early in uh, 2005. I discovered competition. I can't remember exactly how I did, how I discovered that, um, what turned me on. I'm trying to think of what, what got me interested into um, competition shooting. But anyway, I was. I was, and I did go to one match, 
with my SIG P226. And I did okay. It was fun. The very first competition match that I ever shot was an IDPA match. Um, and it was with my SIG P226. 9mm. I had the 9mm version. But I saw some other people there shooting Glocks and shooting 1911s that were doing real well. You got to remember this was 2005. So I decided, you know what? I want to get a Glock and I want to, or I want to get a 1911, either or. So I chose the 1911 route. So I put down a lot of money and I bought two pretty expensive 1911s at that time. They were Kimbers. Don't laugh at me because they were Kimbers. Okay, uh, I actually, folks, I, I had pretty good luck with my Kimbers. I really did not have very many malfunctions. Uh, one of them was about $1,400, and the other was about $1,240. So they were, you know, they weren't the highest-end Kimbers, but they were not the real low-end Kimber 1911s either. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed, uh, I, was, I was a better... I was I was having more fun because I had a 1911 instead of the Sig P226. Not that the Sig was a bad gun, I just could never get used to the double action, single action trigger. I, and still today, 15 years later, I can't get used to the double action, single action trigger. I just can't seem to master it like I can a gun with a consistent trigger pull. So I shot my 1911s for a couple of years, and they were just too big and heavy. They were all steel guns. They were just too big and heavy for me to carry. And I really wanted to carry. I really did. And I, I had a little Keltec P3AT that I would stick in my pocket. And I had a car PM9 that I would carry as a concealed carry um, inside the waist gun. But I wanted something a little bit bigger that I could actually carry. So... And by the way, I, and at that time, I couldn't afford the 45 ACP ammo because I didn't reload. And uh, just now, 15 years later, learning to reload. And I, I got some more information about that coming up in this episode. So my quest for my favorite gun still wasn't complete yet because the 1911s, although they were great guns, and I did shoot better when I, when I purchased the 1911s, probably because I had more practice. That's probably what it was. I had more practice. Uh, it probably wasn't the fact that I was shooting a 1911 versus a SIG 226. It's just that I had more practice by that time. They were just too big and heavy, and I just uh, couldn't afford to keep paying for the 45 ACP ammo. So I remember going to a public range with a friend of mine, and he showed up. I showed up with my 1911s, and he showed up with a Glock 19. And I saw some other people at the competition match uh, shooting Glocks. And I was about ready to take my very first uh, training class. I was getting close to taking my first training class. And uh, so I, I figured, well, I could go to the training class and, with my 1911s. Or I had another idea. And I asked my friend, I said, hey, you mind if I shoot your Glock. I'd like to try that. And of course, like most gun people, like most firearms enthusiasts, he was very willing to let me try his gun. That's just the way we are in the firearms community. All the anti-gun people out there that, that hate us, they don't really know us. All they do is they regurgitate what 
the people that are generally of their political persuasion tell them, they regurgitate it, that guns are bad, that guns are evil, and that gun owners and shooters are are a bunch of um, nut jobs and and substandard people. That's what that's what they're told. It's amazing when you take an anti-gun anti-gun person shooting and they have a good time. It's really amazing how their minds change, isn't it? I've had that experience. How about you? Any of you out there had that experience where you take an anti-gun person shooting? So my buddy was very willing to let me try his Glock 19. And I shot that day about 100 rounds of my own ammo through his Glock 19. And uh, even though I had 45 ACP 1911s, I still had some 9mm, a lot of 9mm ammo left from when I had my SIG P226 at that time. And I had intended to rent some guns at that public range that I knew were 9mm, so I brought, I think I, that day I brought probably three boxes of 9mm. So again, I shot his Glock 19. Well, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought, wow, nice and light. It's light. And at that time, I wasn't quite as accurate with the Glock as I was with my two Kimber 1911s. But it was, it was small, and it was light. And it was, it was the same kind of gun that other people in the competition were, were shooting that were really good. And of course, you know, I wanted to be one of those really good shooters. So I kind of took a liking to that Glock 19, but I, I wasn't really sure if it was a gun for me. So at that time, I put my two 1911s up for sale. And uh, while I was trying to sell those 1911s, those Kimbers, I started doing some research on what guns were the good competitors using at that time. Because again, at that time, I was pretty much all about competition. And I noticed that Glock 34s, Glock 35s, at that time, uh, XDs, and also M&P 5-inch models. Those were all pretty popular. And of course, the 1911s remained popular at that time as well. So I thought, I'm going to try a, a bigger gun than the Glock 19. Glock 34, and I bought a Glock 35. So I sold my 1911s, and I bought a Glock 34 and a Glock 35 which the Glock 35 is the same gun as the Glock 34. It's in 40 caliber instead of 9mm. And I still had plenty of money left over to buy a whole lot of ammo after selling my two 1911s, buying two Glocks and a bunch of ammo. I could have bought a third Glock for the price, for the money that I got for the two expensive 1911s that were just way too big and heavy. Now, I'm not a 1911 hater, folks. I don't know how somehow I got tagged with that but uh, I'm not. I'm not. 1911s are fantastic guns. Uh, today, I just don't see a whole lot of people uh, competing and going to defensive handgun classes with 1911s. Not too many. They, they do, but I just don't see that many of them. So I started shooting my Glock 34 and Glock 35 a lot more and buying tons of 9mm and 40 caliber ammo at that time. And... Uh, I have to say that I began to enjoy shooting more the 34 and the 35 by Glock than I was my 1911s. I know, kind of weird, kind of weird, but but that was me. But once again, I made a bad decision because I could not carry those guns. Those guns were just way too big for me, just way too big. 
And so I thought, well, I love the Glock 34 because it's a great competition gun, and I really enjoy it, and I and I shoot real well with it. But I think I'm going to sell my Glock 35 because 40 caliber just wasn't for me. And for me, there was a big difference. I could not shoot the 35 as well as I could shoot the 34 by Glock. So I put the Glock 35 up for sale. And it didn't take me very long, I think two or three days. And I had it sold for about only about $20 less than what I wanted to get for it. So the same day that I sold my Glock 35, I went right back to the range that I was used to shooting at. And guess what? I remembered my buddy's Glock 19, so I bought one. And I bought a Glock 19. And I started competing with both Glock 19 and Glock 34. Then all of a sudden, the M&Ps started becoming real popular. So I bought an M&P at that time, of course. The first version, 2.0s didn't exist. It was long before the M&P 2.0s came out. And I thought it was okay. And I decided to compare it between my my uh, my G34 and my M&P and XDs were pretty popular so I went out and I got a 5 inch Springfield XD9 and, a, and I also and I had a 5 inch M&P Pro so I had a bunch of 5 inch guns I had a, a Glock 34 an M&P 9 Pro and an XD9 5 inch and uh, I was having a good time you know, switching back and forth, trying to figure out which one was going to be my competition gun. But I wanted something a little bit bigger than a Car PM9 when I wanted to carry a bigger gun. And so that's why I got the Glock 19. So it all evolved into just trying different guns. So where am I going with all this? Well, it was the quest to find my favorite gun at the time. And I should put a little caveat on that. My favorite carry gun. You see, at that time, my my favorite carry gun was a really nice Car PM9 that I loved, and it was a great gun. And at that time, you know, that was pretty much the gun if you wanted a single stack nine millimeter. There wasn't, there weren't very many other options at that time that were quality guns. I mean, back then there was the Keltec single stack nine millimeter that I can remember, and that was about it. And so I stuck with my Car PM9 with the really nice, long, smooth, double action only trigger. But I just wanted something that had more capacity that I could actually carry. So I started, I decided I am going to spend, and this is where I got the idea. I decided I was going to spend an entire year shooting my Glock 19, third generation, an entire year. So all the other guns I had at that point stayed in my safe for a year and all I did was show up at every competition match and every training with my third generation Glock 19 and that was a good decision that I did that now had I picked something else that I was going to shoot for an entire year that might have worked out pretty well but I actually started doing very very well with my G19 um it fits my hand, and right now as I'm doing this podcast, I'm holding the, uh, the third generation that I currently have now that I've, that I've modified a few things on it, but it's still a third generation Glock, and most of it is still in stock configuration. Um, the trigger has all Glock parts. The only change I've made to the trigger is I put a Glock three and a half pound connector in it, and that was uh, pretty much it, but Glocks, Glock 19s fit my hand. 
So I'm going to jump forward to today for a minute, and then I'm going to go back again. But I'm going to jump forward to today. I went and I shot competition today uh, with this Glock 19, and I shot very well for me. For me, I shot very well. I had one one bad stage, which was the the first stage. I had a, you know, it took me a while to get warmed up, but I shot very well today. At, at, you know, good distances, sometimes 10, 15 yards or sometimes up close, uh, closer than that, you know, shot a plate rack pretty, pretty quickly, five steel plates, five shots, knocked them all down pretty quickly. Uh, and that was at about a 10 yard distance with my Glock 19 with, with Trigicon HD sights with a greenish yellow front sight. And uh, I got some Vickers, Larry Vickers parts on this gun. I've got a Larry Vickers extended slide release, uh, a Larry Vickers extended magazine rele release button. I do have a grip plug in this grip to uh, to help make the reloads a little bit easier. Never had any problem. A lot of people say, oh, don't put that thing in there. It's going to cause dirt buildup inside your uh, grip. Really? Well, you know, I've been using these for years. Never had any dirt buildup causing malfunctions on my Glock because of the grip plug back there. And I use different base pads so that I can rip out a magazine out of the magwell if I have that kind of a malfunction where I got to be ripping out. I use the Vickers extended base pads or Pierce. Pierce makes some real good extended base pads. And the Pierce, the Pierce is what I was using today. They don't add extra rounds, but they add a place for the pinky of my weak hand, the pinky of my off hand, my left hand, my other shooting hand. They had a place a place for that. And by the way, it's all about leverage. You know, leverage is very important when you're shooting a handgun. People don't seem to talk about it too much. I just learned this, not, not just recently, but it's taken me years to learn this. But leverage means a great deal. So let me stop real quick and explain about leverage. I don't really believe that it's always how a gun fits your hand that determines how well you can shoot it. You know, I hate it when somebody say, oh, just, they say, just get the gun that fits your hand the best. You'll be fine. No, I don't think so, because uh, the way a gun fits your hand does not automatically mean you can shoot it well. My M&P 2.0 compact fits my hand better than my Glock 19. But I cannot shoot the M&P better than my Glock. When I had uh, XDs, they fit my hand better. When I had a Walther PPQ M2, it fit my hand better. But I could not shoot any of those guns that I mentioned better than my Glock 19. And specifically the model Glock 19. Not the 17, not the 34. I can't get as much leverage. And when I say that, I mean when I grab the grip with my shooting strong hand, my right hand in my case, my pinky comes right to the edge of the grip. And then when I put in the base pad uh, by Pierce, that gives me the ability to get a lot of leverage with my left hand also on the grip by resting on that extended base pad and when I say leverage I can hold down the recoil I mean that that's that's the best way I can I can describe this on an audio podcast I can tame the recoil better when I have better leverage on the gun now 
Other guns I've tried, I can't get the leverage because there's too much of the grip below my hands. And so, in other words, my hand's riding too high on the grip. And there might be a half to three quarters of an inch of grip and magazine still sticking out below my hands. For me, and, and again, this is what you have to test with your gun. This is what I'm going to strongly suggest that you test. What kind of leverage can you get on the gun? Because it's all about... It's all about your hand strength and your arm strength and what you can do, how you can adjust your grip on that gun and how much of your of your hands are gripping that gun to be able to get the leverage to be able to hold that gun and stop it from recoiling so much. I mean, basically, you got to hold the gun still when you shoot. And the easiest way to hold the gun still when you shoot is to find a gun that you can hold still that you can get enough grip on enough of your hands and if you come to one of my classes if you come to one of my classes like the ones that uh, the beyond concealed carry classes that ben and i teach we'll teach you how to get that grip we'll teach you how to get that grip on your gun that helps you control recoil because grip is a huge deal um you know a lot of people talk about triggers 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 they say oh i gotta improve the trigger it's not always that you have to improve the trigger. Sometimes you've got to improve your grip on the gun as well. And there's some things you can do to the grip on your gun that will help you get that leverage that you need on that. So the Glock 19 fits me the best. I cannot shoot a 17 better than my 19. I can't shoot a Glock 17 better than my Glock 19 because I can't get the leverage. I, I can't shoot a Glock 34. I can't shoot an M&P 2.0 I'm um, excuse me, an M&P 5-inch gun better than I can shoot any Glock. I mean, better than I can shoot my Glock 19. Sorry, I got to take a break pretty soon. But I, because I, I can't get the leverage. Okay, now my M&P 2.0 compact that comes pretty close because my M&P 2.0 compact has a grip about the same size as a Glock 19. It fits my hand very well to where I can get the leverage. You see, uh, a Glock 17 fits my hand too by definition. This is why I was saying how well it fits your hand really doesn't mean too much in my humble opinion. Some of you might take issue with that. I have a very open mind, folks. If you don't agree with some things I'm saying, uh, by all means, tell me about your disagreement and give me some good, well-thought-out, tested, tested theories. Don't just regurgitate something other people have said go out and test like I do. I go out and test all the time and I'm shooting and shooting and shooting and testing and testing and trying different things. So if 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 the way if the leverage you you know get on the gun if the, if you're saying Bob that's that's a bunch of garbage you know call in a voicemail 210-646-1727-210-646-1727-1727 email me handgunworld at gmail.com whatever you want anyway put a put a note on facebook whatever and and let me know if i'm full of garbage on that but because and i'm uh, trust me i'll play your voicemail on the show if it's a good, well-thought-out voicemail that's researched and makes sense. Or I'll talk about your email on this show. So I got more to say about leverage. Uh, quick break, and I'll be right back. Okay, back with you. Went to eat dinner, and uh, see how fast I can eat dinner? And get back within just a couple of seconds. How about that? Anyway, 
Back to leverage. So conversely, it's the opposite with a gun that's too small. Um, if your hand is hanging over the bottom of the, or hanging down below the bottom of the grip, it's going to be pretty tough for you to get leverage on that gun to, to slow that recoil down or to handle that recoil, and it's going to make it difficult to shoot. So either way, too big or too small, and it's going to have, you're going to have a difficult time. Now, I've done some things to also improve the odds of being able to control the gun. I've put some nice texturing on this third gen Glock. One good thing about the fifth gen Glocks and the M&P 2.0s and the SIG P320 series out there and several others is, and some of the CZ uh, polymer pistols, they've got good texturing on the grips and that's a plus. Manufacturers seem to be realizing that the, that the public wants that, that the shooting public wants that. And it, that's a huge benefit compared to some of the more slipperier pistols of days of old because you can't, it, it helps you control the gun better. It just simply does. So I added some stippling to this. And I also added stippling on both sides of the gun where, where your thumb rests. I call them the thumb pads. Now for me, since I'm a right-handed shooter, my left-handed thumb is on the frame. Okay, because I use a, uh, they call it a thumbs forward or whatever, but I use that type of a grip. And now if I'm, if you're a left-handed shooter, uh, in case, uh, in case I wanted to shoot my gun left-handed, I, uh, I put stippling on the other side as well on the thumb pad. And if you're a left-handed shooter and you got a Glock, you're probably going to want to put the thumb, the stippling over there. And also, I also noticed that even when I'm shooting right-handed, it gives me, it's an easy index for my, for my uh, index finger. It's an easy play, easy way to find where I'm supposed to put that when I'm doing a reload, where I'm supposed to put that finger when I'm doing a reload uh, or clearing a malfunction, getting my finger off the trigger when I'm reloading and when I'm doing a malfunction or simply when I'm not ready yet to shoot. That stippling gives me a good indicator as to where am I supposed to put my index finger. And I'm now I'm used to looking for that. So any gun that doesn't have that stippling I'm, uh, that I'm going to carry or use, I'm going to add it. So it's not just whether a gun fits your hand. Because fitting your hand to me includes, includes can you reach the trigger. Uh, and a lot of people make a real big deal about grip angle. But I know a lot of guns that have a good grip angle that don't fit my hand at all. Okay. Like, for example, some of the real big full-size SIG 320s, uh, they don't fit my hand. The grip angle is great, but, but they don't fit my hand. Uh, the full size, uh, the full some some of the full size Glocks don't don't fit my hand well enough. The 45 caliber Glocks, they don't fit my hand. I can get a lot of leverage on them, but they're just too doggone big and and they're too fat and some of the grips are too long. Like on a Glock 21, I can't handle that thing, um, and I'm not going to be able to do a real good job probably of of getting the leverage I need to to control the recoil on a gun like that and some grips are too small for me like for example a 1911 it's got a great grip angle but you know what even though the grip angle is great too much of my hand is on the grip and that's something else that you gotta when you're picking your favorite gun you gotta figure out how much of your hand is on the grip and how much is not too much my hand my fingers are so long that when I when I grip 
1911, my fingers pretty much wrap so far around the grip that they're touching the heel of my shooting hand. And a lot of small guns are that way, like the Shield and the and the P365 and the Glock 43s, all those little small guns like that. Um, I got too much hand on the grip, and there's no place for me to put my, my left hand on there and get my left hand on the grip. My left hand just grabs the rest of the fingers on my right hand or grabs the fingers and stuff, and it's, it's just... I want to be able to get both hands on grip surface of the gun, if you know what I mean. And so that's, because that's how I can get more leverage. So think about that. So my, my quest for the favorite gun. So now let's get back to that subject, because I kind of got off on a, on a little tangent here. But, but it was something I thought that I, I found it to be very important over 15 years. So today when I was out shooting... I, uh, I compared my scores and my accuracy. See, and that's another thing. I had somebody on Facebook say, well, you know, when you're making uh, these determinations, you gotta, you got to put a timer, a speed, and an accuracy test. Well, I do. I do include a speed and an accuracy test. Let me tell you, going out and shooting competition, that's speed and accuracy. Um, there's, not, there's not a whole lot better test than going to a competition match if you're going to test against the clock, if you're going to test your skills and the gun against the clock and, and accuracy, because that's what it's all about when you go to competition. Shoot fast and shoot accurately. So that's a good test. So I have noticed that my scores are better when I shoot this particular Glock 19 than any other gun that I own. I have a fifth generation Glock 19 FS with the front sights. I mean, front serrations on the front of the slide. I can't quite shoot that as well. Um, the the trigger, the out-of-the-box stock trigger on that G Gen 5 G19 is real good, but it's just a little too spongy for me. Um, and it's not as good as my slightly modified Gen 3 trigger. Uh, the Gen 5, I have a Gen 5 Glock 17. Now, uh that thing is it's of course it's got the same trigger as a gen 5 glock 19 same trigger a little bit too spongy i just can't seem to believe it or not this sounds funny but i just can't seem to control the recoil on the g17 as good as i can on my 19. now my mp 2.0 that's one of my favorite guns too and it's a very very close second to this um glock gen 3. 19. It's a very close second because the grip, the grip is the, the perfect length for me. I can get all of my hand, but not too much of my hand on the grip. And the really cool thing about that gun is it's got four back straps. When you buy an M&P 2.0 compact, you get four back straps. So you can go from really small to really large on the back straps. And that that's great. You could you can customize that to fit anybody's hand. Or if somebody has real small hands, shoot that M&P with the very smallest grips, uh, back strap, and I think it's probably going to be just fine for you. And the grip is not too long and not too short for me, so I can get the leverage on that gun. I need to do a little bit of stippling on the thumb pads because an M&P, here's one criticism I have of M&P pistols. Um, wherever there's no texture, the, it's a very slippery gun, very slippery. Uh, and that's why I'm really glad that when they came out with the 2.0 series 
that they put all that nice check string on there so so my hand stays stable especially like in in the summertime here in texas when it's 105 degrees outside with high humidity and my hand starts sweating like crazy boy let me tell you what that's when the grip texturing is a big deal that's when it really helps me a lot and that just leads to more accurate and faster shooting for me something you might want to consider is the texturing and now gen 5 glocks they pretty much got it right the texturing is aggressive enough to help you get a good grip on that in almost any condition but it's not too aggressive the mp 2.0 texturing is a little bit too aggressive and for that reason and that reason pretty much alone it's my second favorite gun second to my slightly modified gen 3 glock 19 and I can shoot that MMP 2.0 better than I can shoot my Glock 17. Better than I was ever able to shoot my Sig Legion, double action, single action. I had a Sig Sauer Legion, a P229. Fantastic gun. You guys heard me talk a lot about it on this show. I could never master the double action trigger. The double action first, trigger pull, double action, and then single action. The single action was fabulous, fantastic. But I just couldn't get the leverage and I couldn't master the double action trigger on that gun. So I found it a new home. Now, the wall, I used to have a Walther PPQM2. That was a very fine gun. The, the Walther PPQM2 probably still has the best, if not the second best, double, uh, excuse me, uh, striker fire trigger out there. You, you, can, you can't get a better striker fire trigger. I don't think out of the box without modifying it than a Walther PPQM2. Uh, but you know what? I just I couldn't control the recoil as well on the PPQM2, especially when I put hot loads in there. When I put, uh, especially with concealed carry ammo. See, that's also part of my test. How well does the gun shoot with my concealed carry ammo? I'm not a grandmaster level competition shooter, and I don't shoot. You know, I don't. I don't. You know, download. The, lo the, the the ammunition too much. Now, I have taken up reloading and I'm working on that and I'm doing some downloading of the ammunition uh, only for competition purposes, but that's not the only way that I judge a gun. Uh, it has to be able to shoot full power federal HST 9mm 147 grain or 124 grain or spear gold dot 124 grain rounds i have to be able to shoot those easily with the gun also otherwise it's not a gun for me so when i put that am ammunition in my walther ppqm2 that i used to own i mean i was that that gun was jumping all over the place in my hand and uh, no matter what i did i just could not seem to control that gun as well trigger was great but it's all about control it's all about grip and trigger pull and control controlling the gun don't let the sights move and i just they were moving too much for me on that ppqm2 and i gave it a try i get i i gave it a thousand round trigger job a lot of competition matches with that thing just just couldn't get it to work for me same thing with my uh six hour legion uh p229 and both of i'm talking about some very fabulous guns and if they work for you great then they work for you if they work for you that's fantastic you know 
a Glock 19 might not be for you. And if it's not, that's okay. That's okay. I'm just talking about how to find your favorite gun and some things that you might want to think about that I have learned over 15 years. And I'm, and I'm sharing it with you. That's, that's what this show is all about. Just taking my everyday guy experience and, and sharing it with you and then let you take the best and leave the rest. You know, one of my old mentors when I was in my 20s, one of my mentors taught me, Bob, take the best and leave the rest. And what he was talking about is whenever you hear somebody teach you something, you hear somebody lecture about something, teach a class on something, teach a technique or whatever, take the best and leave the rest. Take the best of what works for you. Take what works for you, that's the best, and leave the rest. Discard it. Whatever doesn't work for you, don't use it. Customize everything you hear and everything you see. Customize it for you. So once you find the favorite gun, the one that the one that not only fits your hand well, but that you can shoot well. See, this is one of the reasons whenever somebody asks me, what gun should I buy? And I've been asked that question quite a bit. I always say, I don't know. You're going to have to go to the range that, that rents guns and probably rent between 7 and 10 handguns. Yeah, uh, that's right. Between about 7 and 10 handguns. What I always suggest is go to the range and just feel some of the guns. And ask the ask the uh, the clerk if you can dry fire the gun, and double check and triple check that the gun is unloaded, and make sure when you dry fire that the muzzle is not pointed in a in any in a dangerous direction, that the muzzle is not going to hurt. I mean, the gun's not going to hurt anybody if you have the muzzle pointed in the wrong direction, and uh, and press the trigger on the gun, and fig and please, whenever you go to a gun store or a range and you're trying guns, please don't point that gun at the uh, sales clerk or anybody else that's with you. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. And for those of you who are gun store clerks or you work at gun shows and stuff, you probably know exactly what I'm saying. I would not want to be on the other end of the counter when somebody's, you know, handling a gun. Even if I know the gun is unloaded, I just get a very uneasy feeling when they point the muzzle at me, if you know what I mean. But try, first of all, dry fire seven to ten guns. Uh, and then maybe pick five or six of those seven to ten guns that you want to pay the money, rent, buy the ammo, go into the range, and shoot them. And I'm talking about when you shoot them, I would say buy about five boxes of ammunition and shoot one box through each of the rental guns that you've rented. 50 rounds if you're shooting 9mm or 40 or 45. Buy a box. Buy a box of 50. Practice rounds. Practice ammunition. And shoot. Yeah, it's going to cost you some money. It's going to cost you the rental fee. These days, it's going to cost you probably $25 to $30 per box of ammunition. It's going to cost you some money, but it's going to save you money in the long run because you'll probably get a gun that is your favorite gun that that works for you. That yes, it fits your hand. Yes, you can reach the trigger. Yes, you can get the leverage. It's not going to be too big or too small. You're going to find out what gun that is. And you're going to buy that gun and probably keep it for a long time. And so it was well worth the money to rent the gun. Or if you um, if you happen to have a friend that you can go to the range with, a friend or a relative that, that owns a gun that you're interested in, offer to pay for their range fees and buy them lunch when you're done. Or buy him dinner when you're done, or something like that, so that and ask him to use your gun and bring your own ammo. By the way, if you're gonna, if you're gonna ask somebody to loan you a gun so you can try it, you supply the ammo. 
okay? You supply the ammo. That's good manners, okay? That's good etiquette, and it and it just it's just the right thing to do, okay? You supply the ammo. Don't ask somebody, hey, can I borrow your gun? And by the way, can I borrow a, a box of ammo with that too? No, 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 no. You buy the ammo, you buy them lunch, you pay for their range fees, stuff like that. So uh, let's go back in time again. Let's see. So what other guns did I go through? Um, oh, I tried to get back into 45s. Uh, bought a Glock 30 SF a long time ago, probably about six or seven years ago. Tried to get back into 45s. And uh, yeah, no, they just didn't work for me. They just didn't. And with the ammo developments these days, with the better technology in ammunition these days i just didn't see enough benefit to shoot a 45 acp and pay for the higher cost of ammo and have a lower amount of rounds and lower capacity in my gun and a gun that was just more difficult to control and shoot than a nine millimeter and again i tested these 45s with 45 concealed carry hot loaded ammo uh, Federal Hydroshocks, HSTs, Spear Gold Dots, both 185 and 230 grain. So, you know, you got to make sure, again, make sure you're testing it with your shooting, your concealed carry ammo. Again, another expensive proposition. And these days, it's pretty difficult to find. But, you know, when when this ammo crisis is behind us, and it will get behind us, Come back and listen to this podcast about how to pick out and how to find your favorite gun and then go buy the ammo that you need and uh, and rent the guns that you need to do that. Right now, I would say listen to the advice of a lot of people who have been shooting for a while and are teaching and they're out there and teaching because we see a lot of students. You know, we see a lot of students come through our classes and every good instructor that has a following that has a, a fairly degree, fairly decent degree of success as an instructor, they see a lot of students and they see what students can shoot real well and what they typically cannot shoot real well. Uh, listen and and take their advice. And I'm going to tell you, I, I've, I've done a fair amount of teaching, not as many as a lot of people out there, but I've done a fair amount of teaching over the last six or seven years and what I see that people can shoot the best as as a general rule and there's there's always exceptions to everything but striker fired polymer framed nine millimeter handguns with good texturing that aren't too big or too small for their hand and those would be guns. And if people are going to ask me to recommend specific guns for your first gun, if somebody's going to ask me, what should I get for my first gun? I don't have the money and the time to go rent a bunch of them. I don't have a bunch of friends that own a bunch of guns. I just need something for self-defense. I feel very comfortable recommending a Smith & Wesson M&P 2.0 Compact, a Smith & Wesson M&P 2.0 Shield, any generation of a Glock 19, a Glock 43X or a Glock 48, a Ruger LC9, something like that possibly, a Sig P365 or a P365XL, even a P320 uh, 320X compact. Okay, um, 
those get a little bit pricey for some people for their first gun but if if you can afford it and you know you have a chance to maybe shoot one of those get one of those i feel comfortable with the guns i just mentioned recommending those guns to somebody as their first handgun that they own if they happen to be challenged enough to where it's hard for them to rack the slide then some of the smith and wesson ez models like the ez9 and the ez380 uh, i wouldn't wouldn't mind although i hate i hate manual safeties and things but you know i would much rather see somebody you know that's the other thing you know and i know people are going to argue with me i'm going to get some bad comments about what i'm going to say right now but for new shooters new shooters i do not recommend a handgun with a manual safety to disengage i just don't for experienced shooters okay all right because experience some shooters are going to put in the time and the effort and the money to train and to practice and to train and to practice and if you do that and you're practicing regularly then okay get a gun with a thumb safety if that's what you want okay or a grip safety if that's what you want i don't like them but if they work for you they work for you somebody asked me on facebook uh just today they said hey i your shooting looks pretty good how often do you train i said at least twice a month sometimes three times a month i'm doing something i'm either going to the range with ben branham and we're teaching each other and working with each other because we're both members of a local range here in the san antonio area and so because we're members we go out there we spend time we shoot videos for the shooters club and uh, we also practice uh, i'm either doing that or i'm going to a competition match or i go to classes myself i've been a student at many many classes so I've trained with some of the top people. Uh, I've trained with Masada Yub and Tom Givens and Carl Wren and Spencer Keepers and all the Suarez people. Well, not all of them, but John Payne, Randy Harris, um, Glenn Matthews uh, at, uh, at Suarez International. Roger Phillips, back when he used to be with uh, Suarez International. So I've, I've done a lot of training with uh, with good trainers uh, that know what they're teaching that have been doing it for a long time uh, so i've been a student as well i want you to know that about me because i don't want you to just think that i'm some guy with a bunch of opinions that does a podcast and once a week gets on his laptop and starts throwing out information all over um, what i share with you is 15 years of experience since june 2005 uh, now, just because somebody's been shooting for a long time also does not mean that they are good or that they have good information. You know, you, you, you have to figure out, you have to assess what classes have they taken. How skilled are they as a competitor? They don't have to be a grandmaster top-level shooter in competition, but as long as they can be respectable when they go there and... Uh, and, and they've taken some training and things like that. They have training classes, certificates that they can show you that says, hey, here, here's the training I've taken. Listen to those people, okay? Listen to those people. Don't just listen to somebody that says, well, yeah, I've been shooting all my life. You know, I've been shooting for 30 years. Well, just because they've been shooting for 30 years doesn't mean that they know how to do it correctly. Time does not make you, time does not make you good at what you're doing. Because if you've been practicing and shooting poorly, 
and this is like this with anything. If you've been practicing and shooting your your craft poorly for 30 years, you're still going to suck, okay? that That's just the way it is. You know, many of you know that my real job, my day job, I'm a salesperson. I've been a professional salesperson for 30 two years and I got some very very good training good sales training for seven years when I was a young man from about 24 until 32 about eight years I got some very 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 good training okay so I do pretty well in sales and I, 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 I could never think of myself doing anything but being in sales I love it I just absolutely love it and and I'm pretty good at it and I made a pretty healthy living for myself I don't mean to brag I just I just want you to know but I know a lot of salespeople who have been doing it for 30 years and they're terrible they just are of course i know a lot of salespeople who have been doing it for 30 years and they're fantastic it's just it's a matter of what have they learned you know what have they learned my old mentor once said uh you can always judge a professional by what they learn after they think they know it all Think about that. You, you can judge a professional by what have they learned after they think they know it all. Unfortunately, in, in the shooting world, there are a lot of know-it-alls. There are a lot of know-it-alls. And really, they're not. And then the other thing is you have to assess how well can a person teach? How well can they get their ideas across and, and the knowledge that they have and teach it to other people? I heard somebody say today, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to name a name or anything or, or where I heard it or anything like that. But I heard somebody say, well, if somebody is not at least a, a grandmaster or master level competition shooter, or if unless they were a member of some elite military special forces unit for many, many years, they have no business teaching anybody anything. And folks, I 100% disagree with that opinion. I don't believe that you have to be a grandmaster competition shooter or a 10-year veteran of an elite special forces military unit to qualify as an instructor. I'm not saying that grandmasters and special forces men and women are not good or are not credible I'm saying they don't always make good teachers there's a big difference people can sometimes perform something well but they cannot teach it very well if you want to be an instructor you have to have the ability to make a point to make it make it a, a good point put it in a way that other people can understand that they can absorb and that they can try and go to the shooting range and have success with what you taught them. And if they don't have success, a good teacher needs to know how to diagnose why the person is not having success and gently and professionally correct them without offending them most of the time. That's a good instructor, you see? and. Just because someone's a good shooter or came out of the special forces in the military doesn't mean that they have the art of teaching down to you know the level that they need to have it, or they don't they don't have that kind of skill. Okay, so I, I really disagree with that guy's point because uh, now there there might be some grandmaster or or master level shooters that 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 can teach. 
you know, or some special forces military, you know, people that can teach you how to shoot. But the statement that unless somebody comes from that background that they have no business teaching is false. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at sports, and I know that sports controversial right now, a lot of controversy in sports. I don't want to get into that. Okay, but let's just talk about the performance. You know, a lot of good coaches in sports, a lot of good coaches, they were, they were not the best players on the field. They were not the best players on the field. Many of them were just average players. Okay, but they understood the game. They understood it very well. They understood more than just their position, and they knew how to teach it and coach those techniques to other people. And so they became a very, very successful coach. There are many of them like that. You know, I mean, many of you know I'm a, I'm a Packer fan, a Green Bay Packer fan. You know, Vince Lombardi, most people know who Vince Lombardi is. Vince Lombardi was not a very good football player. He was, he was a decent football player. But he was not all that great. Again, he was decent, but he was not great. And he didn't play. Vince Lombardi did not play professional football very long. But yet he became one of the best, greatest football coaches of all time. Okay? So, I mean, think about that. It, it, you know, he understood the game. He understood motivation. He understood teaching. And there, I, I can remember a lot of, of great players that did not make very good coaches. It's no different with shooting uh, or any other kind of sport. You know, some of the best golf instructors, I used to be a, an avid golfer when I was a lot younger and stuff. And uh, some of the best golf instructors were never pro golfers, okay? They were, they were good golfers, but, but they weren't pro golfers. But boy, they could, they could teach me how to hit a ball and, and how to hit it straight and not slice it and not hook it. And how to pick the right club for the right conditions and the right lie and all that other stuff. And they taught me that and it worked. But, but they weren't out on the PGA Tour um, as, as high-level million-dollar professionals. So back to finding your favorite gun. Whatever it is that you come up with, once you find it, stick with it. I am a big believer. And i tell you what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to find another gun now. It's been, it's been uh, let's see. When did I buy my first Glock 19? I think it was um, 2008, I think. It was 08 or 09. I can't remember. Pretty sure it was 08 now, the more I think about it. So for 12 years, I've been trying to find a gun that I can shoot better than the Glock 19, and I can't. For me, I can't. I can't find a gun. Now, it's... It, my Glock's not the most high-quality gun that you can buy. You can buy a lot of guns that are higher quality than, than a Glock. Glocks are good enough. They're good enough for most people. They're good enough for 90% of the people that are going to use them as a carry or in defense of their life or even go to competition. They're good enough, but, but they're not the best gun that I can buy. And I have the money to buy pretty much any gun I want. I mean, seriously, really. I have the money to buy just about any gun that I wish. I just don't choose to go buy some guns because I've tried them and they don't work for me. So why would I want to spend that money on a gun that doesn't work for me when I can buy one, two, or three guns that do work for me and a bunch of ammo and a bunch of training and everything else? And that's, that's what the most important thing is. So I've been trying. And like I said, I've put these guns to the test. 
I've some of them I've I've shot for like an entire year and I competed and trained with them for an entire year most of the time well over every gun that I've tried uh, I've put well over a thousand rounds through those guns okay I've given them a thousand round trigger job as I've always been saying since almost the very beginning of this podcast back in 2009 I've been talking about the thousand round trigger job you, you, you pretty much don't know if a gun's going to really work for you unless you shoot a thousand rounds through it. That's what I mean by the thousand round trigger job. Okay? Uh, and so these guns, I put, I put them to the test for me. I put them to the test with a timer and under pressure and in a training class and, and measured them for accuracy. My Glock 19, there's a lot of guns that are more accurate than this gun. It's not the most accurate gun in the world. It's not. I've done some things that help me become a little bit more accurate, like putting in the three and a half pound tri uh, trigger connector, which it's they really shouldn't call it that because the the trigger is up four and a half to five pounds anyway, even though they call it a three and a half pound uh, trigger connector. Um, I've measured the pull weight of this a lot. It's between four and a half and five pounds. And I've stippled it, like I said, and I've, and I've taken off the finger grooves and, uh, and things like that. Uh, and I've put some extended controls on it, but I really haven't done too much. I mean, those, those do help me shoot it a little bit more accurately, which is the beauty of Glocks. And M&Ps, Glocks and M&Ps, and even some of the SIGs now, you can you can do a lot. You can get a lot of accessories, and you can customize the guns. I, I still think the two, the two king of the hill guns for customizing are 1911s and Glocks. You know, you can customize 1911s and Glocks to just about anything you want. You can turn them in and make them work for you. And there's so many different options. And I think that's why you see a lot of people that use them. 1911s and Glocks, it just seems like you can you can customize those and you can do so many cool things to it to make them your favorite gun. So the quest continues. Uh, I may, for the second time, shoot my M&P 2.0 for an entire year. And I may see, I may test to see after a year after a year of steadily shooting that gun, can I can I shoot it better than my Glock 19? We'll see. And I might I might even test a, a Sig P320 uh, X 320X compact, which uh, I have been studying a lot about that gun, and I've talked to some people that actually shoot one and own one, and been doing a lot of research. I think I gotta try one. I think that's a gun I, I just need to go ahead and buy and try it because I don't think anybody's going to loan me their SIG P320X for a year. I mean, if you're listening to this show and you want to loan me yours for a year, okay, fine. I'll take it, but I don't think I'm going to get too many people interested in doing that for me. All right, so I want to finish up by saying... Uh, something to all Shooters Club members out there. I really need your help. I really, really need a huge favor from all of you who are members of the Shooters Club. PayPal has dumped us. Uh, they've stopped doing business with me and with Ben Branham, PayPal, because they're anti-gun. And so I don't want to have anything to do with PayPal anymore uh, when it comes to um, 
training classes or shooting or anything like that. So if you're a Shooters Club member, can you please, when, when it's time for you to renew, can you please cancel your PayPal subscription and re-sign up on our website using the new credit card or debit card method that we have. Now, some of you are monthly members, so that means pretty soon you're going to get a notification that your Shooters Club membership did not get charged and you won't be able to log in and you won't be able to watch all the content that Ben and I have on there. So, uh, if you're a monthly member, please do that pretty soon. If you're a, an annual member, it might be a little while. Some of, you, some of you might be up for renewal pretty soon, and some of you may not be. Some of you just renewed. I know that. So your login is good until your expiration date. But if you would please, when you get the notice, re-sign up. Uh, you won't have to pay through PayPal anymore because PayPal is going to stop charging you. Uh, and our system is automated. So if you don't pay, you don't have access. It cancels out your login. Uh, so some of you may have already been canceled if you're monthly members. So if you'd please do that, I would very much appreciate it. Uh, ben just put up a nice dry fire class, a video dry fire class on the Shooters Club. And uh, when we do some teaching next weekend on the 19th and 20th here in San Antonio, we're going to be doing some filming for the Shooters Club at that class. And also when we do it in Dallas. By the way, San Antonio is almost sold out. Beyond Concealed Carry, September 19th and 20th. There's a couple spots for last-minute people if you want to sign up. Go to our websites. Dallas, November 14th and 15th. November 14th and 15th in Waxahachie, Texas. That class is half full already, folks. Half full. So don't procrastinate too long. We're looking at scheduling a Houston class probably in January. Um, maybe a class in Utah coming up soon as well and a couple of other locations and if you're interested in hosting us and coming to your town and doing a two-day beyond concealed carry class ben branham and i are the instruct instructors contact me uh, i have a good deal for people who are interested in hosting a class for us in your town that's it folks um thanks for tuning in i appreciate it you've just listened to another episode of the handgun world podcast a practical show done by a practical guy, and, of course, that is me, Bob Main. Remember, shoot straight, shoot safe, read your Bible every day, and I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye.